This is Scott. This is Rebecca. Welcome to Hardy Party at Five and a Half. It's kind of like a variety show. That's right. A smile for your ears. So keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and let's see where this roller coaster takes us. Hey Scott. Hey Rebecca. Are you so excited? I am. We have another one of your top level man crush on the podcast today. We do. And apparently all your top level man crush are named Eric. I guess they are. <laughs> because today <laughs> on the podcast we have Eric Nadell. He is the voice of the Texas Rangers since 1979. He has been voted the Texas Sportcaster of the Year seven times. Seven times. That's more Super Bowls than Tom Brady has. That is impressive. And in 2014, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Wow. We have a Hall of Famer on the show today. We do. And you don't have to be a baseball fan to enjoy this podcast because I asked him about his wife and he loves music and he wrote a book of poetry. He's a renaissance man. He is a renaissance man. So please welcome to Hardy Party of Five and a Half. Eric Nadel. plays behind fielder a step or two at first base. Here's the 1-1 offering. A swing and a drive to left center field. That is in the gap. It ties the game. Alberto's home. Here's fielder around third base. Prince is being waved around. He's steaming for the plate. Here's the throw. Ahead first dive. He scores! The Rangers win it 4-3 and Josh Hamilton is mobbed between first and second. Harry to the set. Now to the plate. Cruz is swinging a high fly down the left field line. It is hooking deep in the corner. Way back. That ball is history. A walk-off grand slam for Nelson Cruz. The ballpark is exploding. Cruz fires his helmet. Arrives at home plate. The Rangers are there waiting. They have beaten the Tigers 7-3. to The pitch. Breaking ball. Strike three call. The Rangers are going to the World Series. In the 50th year of the franchise. In their 39th year in Texas. Under a full moon in Arlington. The Texas Rangers have won the American League pennant. We have the opportunity to bring joy into people's lives. To touch people with the gift of this great game. And most important, of course, we have the chance every day to be a light in the world. Let's never forget to keep that part of the dream alive. Well, welcome, Eric Nadell, voice of the Texas Rangers. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. Yeah. Thanks so much. I, I love it. I love baseball. We love baseball and everything about it. So this is it's an honor to have you on. Yeah. I appreciate your asking me. You guys, yeah. You guys seem like you're a lot of fun. We'll find out. <laughs> Let's see where this goes. Yeah. 
So we know that you were born in Brooklyn and you're a big Dodger fan. So what was life like in New York being a Dodger fan in the 50s? Brooklyn was, you know, they had an unbelievable attachment to the team. And, and back then when I was growing up, you know, baseball players made the same amount of money as the other people in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Gil Hodges, who was the Dodgers' first baseman, lived around the corner from us. And so you really felt an attachment to the team. I was just six years old when my parents started taking me to games at Ebbets Field. And I got really attached. And at the end of that season, the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. So I really didn't get to experience, you know, that much of the strong feelings uh, during a baseball season, just that one season, really. Yeah. And the Dodgers that year did not win the pennant. They had won it the year before and the year before that. 1957, the year that I started going, uh, they didn't win the pennant. And then in September, it was announced they were moving to Los Angeles. Yeah. And it was just an absolutely crushing blow. Mm. to all of these people who had grown up with the Dodgers in Brooklyn, including my parents. Uh, my father really was never a baseball fan again. Wow. Um, oh, wow. And, um, you know, once I started working in baseball, you know, he kind of got back into it. Mm -hmm. but, uh, the Dodgers was so much a part of the fabric of Brooklyn uh, that their leaving was, was just horrible. But, you know, we lived in a middle-class neighborhood. We lived in what they call a two-family house there, which in the rest of the world they call a duplex. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> my grandparents, my mom's parents lived upstairs from us. Wow. And, you know, I was close enough to my elementary school and my junior high school to walk to school. Uh -huh. Sometimes I would walk to high school. It was about a mile. Sometimes I would ride my bike. Um, yeah. It was convenient for my dad. He would drive me. Um, but it was, you know, it was uh, the kind of upbringing that you're glad you had, not the ideal place probably for a kid with all that concrete in New York. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. But the, you know, but I got to play Little League Baseball on a, they called it a grass field. It was really just dirt. <laughs> a, quote, grass field that was really dirt. But, you know, we were kids playing in the street all the time. We were playing stickball and punch ball and going to the schoolyard and playing basketball. And that's pretty much what I lived for as a kid, was both playing games and then going to games, you know, going to Madison Square Garden to see the Knicks and the Rangers and going to see the Giants and the Jets play football. You know, I was totally into sports. So when you're playing stickball, who was the player that you would try to stand like? Because I know every kid does that. I know I did. So who was the guy that you tried to hit like? Well, I didn't really have uh, a stance that I copied. Yeah. We had all kinds of favorite players. And as the, uh, as the Mets came in in 1962, and became our favorite team. Yeah. Those were the guys who unfortunately we emulated because they were like the worst team in baseball. There were some guys that were on that team in 62. They had some of the old Dodgers. They actually had Gil Hodges, and he was the guy I would make believe yeah. I was. Uh, Don Zimmer was on that team. Later oh, wow. To uh, Mavs, the Rangers, Duke Snyder. Um, Buddy Bell's dad, Gus Bell. Was oh, yeah. Was of that team. Um, Elio Chacon was the shortstop. Uh, they had a catcher named Choo Choo Coleman. And Roger Craig was the ace of the pitching staff. He lost 24 games. He lost 24? He lost 24. Oh, my. 
That's the, nice. The nuts and announcers were always reminding us, you have to be really good to lose 20 games or they wouldn't keep sending <laughs> you out there. That's right, yeah. <laughs> You've got to break through at some point, right? Yeah. yeah exactly. who, who did you stand like? I was a big Yaz fan when I was really young. So I always, you know, his he held the bat really high and straight. So I always tried to hit like him. That was the top of you, yeah. Yeah, that, that it, is, it's hard to get around on that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not who you stand like now. No, I'm more you, like you, Mark Grace you, now. You morphed into Mark Grace yeah, at some point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For softball, I still do Mark Grace. So, so. Slow pitch. You know, yeah. that's where we are now, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. So, in New York, there, I know there's a story that you have that you're riding in your car with your dad. It's a DeSoto, right? Yeah. Sort of yeah. Over. So yeah, tell us what happened that like totally changed what you were going to do in your life. So. Yeah, so my dad was a dentist and every now and then uh, on his lunch hour, he would pick me up and we would go to lunch together. And one day we were in the car and the Yankee game was on the radio. So we're listening to Mel Allen do this Yankee game. Yeah. And I started thinking, now how did this guy get off work? And I asked my dad, how did Mel Allen get off work today so he could go to the baseball game? And my dad said, no, that is his work. That's his job. Yeah. And I said, wait a second. So you're going to go back to the office in an hour and you're going to pull teeth and fill down. <laughs> and this guy goes to Yankee Stadium and blah, 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 blah. And they pay him for that. You know, he even gets to drink beer and eat hot dogs. You know, they used to be <laughs> My dad said, yeah. I said, well, daddy, he's got a better job than you do. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. yeah seven or eight years old at the time that's so great um, unbelievably you know here i am actually doing that more than 60 yeah. years later definitely yeah, just, just a little bit in the hall of fame and such so <laughs> just a little. i think it's worked out for you <laughs> it worked out all right and you know my parents were really very much in favor of this they at that time there were only 16 major league teams oh yeah it's true and so there were two announcers per team there were 32 jobs you know in yeah. the whole country doing this yeah. and you know they said you know your odds aren't very good you should probably try to be a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer or something like that um but i never really lost the desire to do it and they actually helped me along the way they they got me a tape recorder for my 14th birthday and i would turn down the wow. sound on the tv make believe i was doing the games when i was in high school they paid for me to go to a program at northwestern university uh, in chicago for kids interested in radio broadcasting and that's really kind of how I got my start. Oh, that's cool. Actually, we got to run the college radio station a couple of nights a week uh, and took classes in how to operate a control board. And we got our FCC licenses. And that actually put me you know, in a position when I went to college uh, above all of the other incoming freshmen who wanted to do radio but really had no background. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. No, that's cool that they they were supporting you in that. When originally they were like, uh, don't know if this <laughs> is a real so job. Even, even in college, they were urging me, you know, to take the LSAT. By then, they realized I wasn't going to be a doctor or a dentist. I, you know, I fainted at the sight of blood. <laughs> yeah, law <laughs> school seemed to be a good idea to them, and they they kept really harping on that. Even yeah. when I was in the business doing minor league hockey, you know, making hardly any money at all. You know, they were suggesting that, you know, I could probably live a lot better if I would go be a lawyer. Um, but it just wasn't really of interest to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So after college, you, you're you a minor league hockey announcer. You started in Michigan through Oklahoma City, then Dallas, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So how does a hockey announcer become a baseball player or a baseball announcer? Just how do you switch from one to the other like that? How did that well, come out? Great difficulty, honestly. You know, I had grown up with baseball, playing baseball, listening to baseball. Um, from the time I was a little kid, you know, I had heard probably thousands of games. Uh, but after my second year broadcasting the Dallas Blackhawks, which was our minor league team before mm -hmm. the Dallas Stars moved to Minnesota, um, I got a call from the Rangers asking me if I had ever done baseball. And, you know, I lied and told them that I had, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have a You can figure it out prove. later, right? Yeah. I didn't have a tape to prove it, so they let me audition. I did four games into a tape recorder uh, late in the 1978 season. And yeah. that happened for me to start the following year. So I had a whole off season to get ready. Mm -hmm. And so I asked my friends around the country to record the baseball announcers in their cities and send me a cassette. So I, you know, right. I was listening to Vin Scully and, you know, Ernie Harwell and Jack Buck and all of these great announcers around the country. And I had learned to do hockey in college uh, by learning the phrases you do play by play basically as a series of phrases yeah ways of saying different things i really i needed to learn the baseball phraseology you know there's a ground ball to short well you can say it any number of ways you can say there's a slow roller to short there's a high hopper to short there's a one hop smash to short yeah say on a fly ball to center you can say uh, rivers is after it or you could say rivers racing into the gap or rivers coming on, or rivers, you know, strolling to his left or coasting yeah. to his right. All of these kind of words need to be on the tip of your tongue to do play by play. And I spent that whole off season, you know, practicing that. I actually bought a VCR, which at that time cost a thousand dollars. Yeah, I was saying that's probably four figures. Yeah, thousand dollars for the first version, you know, of the, yeah. of the video recorder. And I got some video cassettes of games and turned down the sound and, you know, did make believe broadcasts of, off those games. Oh, wow, um, that's cool. But the biggest challenge for a baseball announcer isn't really the play by play, it's what are you going to do with the time between pitches? Yeah. Between batters, you know, in a three hour baseball game. And of course, back then a game wasn't three hours, it was two and a half hours. But, you know, now it's over three hours. The ball's in play for about 15 minutes. Yeah, so you had a lot of time to fill. He's just filled. Yeah. How are you going to fill that time? And a lot of it has to do with pacing and personality. And that was the hardest part of it because hockey is super fast paced. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't worry about filling the time. You don't worry about having any personality. Hmm. In baseball, it's exactly the opposite. I was really lucky though. My first partner was John Miller, who went on to yeah. do satellite baseball for many years on ESPN and now is the voice of the San Francisco Giants. Uh, and he really helped me make the transition just by emulating him and also asking him a million questions. Huh. Um, and it, it helped a lot. He was only there one year before moving on to Boston, but uh, that was really, you know, that was baseball broadcasting 101 with John. Yeah, yeah. I actually, we went to a Baltimore game, I guess in the nineties and he was the announcer for the Orioles. Yeah. And we were leaving the game and I spotted him across the parking lot and I like tracked him down. And I'm like, I had him sign my ticket. So he's probably like, who is this guy? But yeah, I love John Miller too. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So what do you remember about your first Ranger broadcast, 1979? In 79, I lived in Kansas, probably went to a Royals game. Occasionally we lived in the country. 
So what do you what were you doing in 1979? First Ranger broadcast. First Ranger broadcast was at Tiger Stadium, and back then uh, I would do television color or analysis with yeah. seven innings of the game with Frank Gleber as the play-by-play guy, and then for two innings of the game, normally like the fourth and the fifth or the fifth and the sixth, I would go over and do radio, do the play-by-play on the radio. And what I remember about that game more than anything is it was really cold. <laughs> um, it was sunny, but very cold. And the, they had had a fire in the stadium um, during spring training and the regular broadcast booths were not usable. So we actually oh, wow. had to work outside instead of a booth that's semi-enclosed, we were completely out in the open. Oh no. Above <laughs> the upper deck where the football announcers used to work when they did Lions football games at Tiger Stadium. Wow. And I knew I was going to be on camera uh, both at the beginning of the game and I was going to be going down on the field after the game. And I wanted to look really cool. So I wore this leather sport jacket. Yeah. I didn't bring an overcoat. I don't know. And I figured, oh, it's sunny. It's not going to be too cold. Um, but it was really windy and it got colder and colder as the, uh, as the day went on. And Fergie Jenkins pitched a complete game that day. The Rangers won eight to two. Uh, fortunately, it was a pretty quick game. And I was getting ready to go down to the field. And I figured, well, I, you know, I better go, I better go take a leak before I do that. And I tore my fly, the zipper on my pants <laughs> as I was zipping up and I couldn't close it. And all I had was this sport jacket. Yeah. So I went into the booth and Frank Lieber was a large guy. And I, I tapped Frank on the shoulder. It was between innings and tapped him on the shoulder and I took out his headset. I said, Frank, can I borrow you overcoat? And he had this big white trench coat, like uh, Hank Stram, the Kansas City Chiefs coach. Oh yeah, in the frozen tundra. Yeah, Yeah. kind of a Columbo overcoat. And I borrowed his Columbo trench coat. And that's what I wore down on the field doing my first ever TV interview with Kirby Jenkins. It's me in this five sizes too big, (laughs) white trench coat on the field interviewing Kirby Jenkins. Oh, that is awesome. That's incredible. Oh, gosh. I mean, just making it work. (laughs) I want to see that that footage. Yeah, we need to find that somewhere. Yeah, that would be great. All right, so top three moments as a ranger announcer what are your top three you can reminisce with scott a little bit yeah, i'm sure I, he's I got some. some of the same so. yeah yeah so, so what are your top three well the first one is the rangers winning the pennant for the first time oh yeah and neftali Feliz striking out a rod the ballpark going crazy you know i couldn't even talk for about a minute i was so overcome <laughs> it was it was just incredible yeah um, it's that's really number one two and three <laughs> but the second one is probably the night the Rangers scored 30 runs in Boston oh, yeah. to set an all-time major league record. I was planning to take that game off. It was oh, at the end of a road trip. The Rangers were out of contention, and it was a doubleheader. And I was planning to take the doubleheader off, fly home, so I would be well-rested the next night when the team came home, and we would be broadcasting in 100 degrees, which would really really sap your energy. And then I thought, I remember what Mark Holtz used to say, my longtime partner, he'd say, well, what if you take a game off and that's the night that Charlie Huff goes a perfect game? 
Yeah, something happens that you should have been there something for. Yeah, really big happens, and I thought yeah. to myself, oh, what, what the heck? Just do it. Yeah. And so I did the game, and the Rangers wound up scoring 30 runs. <laughs> In order to do that, you know, they got, I think, seven RBIs from their number nine batter, Ramon Vasquez, including yeah. the three-run homer in the ninth inning. <laughs> 30 runs. And Jared Salamaki, who batted eight, drove in six runs. They got he was a catcher, runs. right? Salamaki? Yeah. 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 And the Rangers actually were trailing three to nothing in that game after three innings. Oh, wow. 30 runs in the last six innings of the game. <laughs> All sorts of weird stuff surrounding that game. So I love that one. Um, I love the, the second time the Rangers clinched the pennant, which of course was the year after um, the first one. Um, yeah. But probably more unique than that was the night Josh Hamilton hit four home runs, which also happened in Baltimore as it turned Yeah. Out. And you know, getting an opportunity to to call the I think I called three of the four, uh, including that fourth one was that was pretty special. Nolan yeah. Ryan's 5,000 strikeout was a big moment too. It was kind of a media creation, you know, 5,000, just a number. Nobody had done it before. It's not yeah. going to stop at 5,000. But I actually had a chance to call that play, which got a lot of national attention during a time when I never got to call any dramatic moments. You know, Mark Holtz was the lead guy. Yeah. I did the fourth, fifth, and sixth inning. Yeah. So I never got to call anything, you know, really important until that game when it just so happened. You know that the five thousand strikeout came in the fifth inning of that game. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was against Ricky Henderson, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I have a Nolan memory. I was at the seventh no hitter at Ranger Stadium. Yeah, you and were I was a thousand other people. Yeah, yeah. No, I was really there. I yeah, was really there. He was. We were, I was with a couple of buddies. We wanted to see Nolan because you never knew what happened when Nolan would pitch. So mm -hmm. we were out there, and I remember it happened. And there was this oldest man I had ever seen was next to me. Didn't know him at all, and we hugged like we were friends forever. <laughs> when everybody was going crazy in the stadium. Yeah. So I always remember hugging him, and then after a really awkward awkward hug i realized okay i better i better get back with my buddies yeah now, so. scott's dad actually was signed with pirates when he was young and yeah he had the same philosophy he wouldn't let he wouldn't leave a game early right. so for the first i mean we've kind of wavered on that a little as a little we've bit. gotten older but yeah. when we were i mean for years he would say he would say scott yeah. would say we're never leaving a game early my dad says you never know and he was at a game once he was at an Oriole game where they were way behind i think it was 13 to 1 or something and the Orioles came back and won and he promised he yeah. swore he would never leave a game early and yeah. he never did yeah so yeah, yeah. Well, my most memorable yeah. game is when I caught that ball that Pudge Rodriguez hit and got Cal Ripken to sign it. You yeah. know, that grounder that came up. Yeah, that was right that, behind that you. you were right behind me, yeah. but you missed. I caught, yeah, that one. <laughs> um, so how has your relationship with the players changed um, over the past 42 years? Dramatically, you know, when I started doing this, I was 27 years old, which was probably a little bit younger than the average age of our team back then. We had a lot of veteran players then. And those yeah. guys really kind of took me under their wing. Uh, in those days, you know, the broadcaster was really considered kind of one of the boys. And I remember the first time we were on a road trip, um, I went into the hotel bar in Detroit and the players were on one side of the bar and I didn't want to, you know, invade their privacy. I had met all these guys in spring training, but really, you know, I didn't have any relationships with them. And I went over the other side of the bar and I ordered a drink, and Richie Zisk came over, 
and walked over to me and he said, hey, Eric, come over, you know, hang out with us. Yeah. Anytime you want to go out with us after a game, you know, just ask me and I'll tell you where we're going. Huh. And he even told me, and in a couple of these cities, there are these great bars. I was single then. There are these great bars where you definitely want to go because there'll be yeah. lots of girls there. And you're welcome to come and hang out with us. And so I did that. And for many years, you know, I had friendships um, with guys on the team. And you go back to that original team, Buddy Bell and Jim Sundberg are the, exactly the same age as I am. Yeah. You know, I developed friendships with them that, you know, exist to this day. You know, Charlie Huff came the next year. You know, Charlie's, you know, also about the same age as me. Um, those guys really were contemporaries and they were my friends. I continued hanging out with the players until the mid-90s. Yeah. Much. And then with the advent of um, talk radio, that's really what I blame for the, the alienation. Oh, yeah. Announcers and players is players could no longer differentiate between guys like me and guys who work for a talk radio station who are going to call them in the hotel room, you know, at six o'clock in the morning and ask yeah. them to do a show, or they're going to you know, say a lot of negative things about them. Yeah. And so players started wanting to have nothing to do with the quote media. Mm -hmm. And even though I was working for the team and my job was to put these guys in the best possible light, um, they were less inclined to want to hang out with me. Also, by then, I was considerably older than a lot of those players. Um, like the last generation of guys who I hung out with a lot, um, guys like Bobby Witt and John Burkett and Darren Oliver. Um, I was older than those guys, but not that much. Yeah. Those guys, I, you know, Rusty Greer, you know, those guys I still consider friends of mine. Once you got past that, uh, then I was I was really like too old to be those guys. And now it's not like I could be their father. I could be a lot of these guys' grandfathers. Yeah. You know, I started doing this job in 1979. Then we don't have anybody who was even born in 1979. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. we when we watch now, I say they just look like babies. They look like they're 12 they years just old. Look yeah. So young. Yeah. So and it, you, it's interesting you talked about the talk radio changed it and then probably social media has even made it even more so with like yeah. the negative reaction they to kind of protect themselves more right i don't they're yeah. gun shy you know and i, I don't blame them you know yeah, I, I wouldn't media either has been it's been great for me because it's made it a lot easier to connect with fans yeah fans to send us letters yeah you yeah. know every day somebody would come into our booth with a few letters that people had written and sent to the ranger offices. <laughs> um, they'd come from all over the country. You know, back then we were on WBAP, which had an incredible 50,000 watt signal that you could hear almost all over the country. And we would get letters from, you know, from all over the place. You know, yeah. It was really fun, but it's a lot easier now, you know, to be reachable on Twitter or Instagram. I, I don't do Facebook anymore. It was just too overwhelming for a while. Yeah. Um, and I felt bad I couldn't respond to everybody. And so, and then I got hacked. So I, I took myself <laughs> off. Enough of that, yeah. People can reach me on Twitter. Um, they can reach me on Instagram. You know, I'm not that hard to find. People find my email address all the time and send me emails, which is fine. You know, yeah. I respond to everyone. You know, I remember as a kid, you know, I'd be sending letters to players. Oh. And, you know, some of them answered, some of them didn't. 
Back yeah. then, we didn't have as many demands for autographs and stuff as we do now. Yeah. Would, you know, I would write to announcers too. In fact, even when I was a hockey announcer, wondering if I should keep doing it or if I was wasting my time. And I wrote to some of the announcers, and some of them didn't write back. And I thought, you know, that's that's awful. You know, how how could they not write back? And yeah. so now I'll, I I answer everybody who, mm. who writes. And that's great. Just a fan or an aspiring broadcaster, you know whatever you know yeah yeah no that's awesome so you mentioned broadcasting what what are the keys to specifically for radio what are the keys to to making a great broadcast as an announcer i think the most important thing in baseball and it really is different in sport sport but in baseball it's connecting with fans you know on a personal level Uh, yeah being friendly having a smile in your voice sounding like you're happy to be there yeah and then you, you make a connection with them on a human level and at that point it almost doesn't matter what you say it's more how you say it that makes them comfortable to listen to you night after night after night yeah and you know you you start with that obviously you have to have the play-by-play um but i don't think that people are fans of mine or enthusiastic listeners of mine because of the way I call a ground ball to short or even a home run. Uh, it's because of, you know, the comfort level they have in listening. Yeah. You know, that feeling that I'd like to hang out with this guy. I want yeah. to mm-hmm. I'm sitting next to him at the ballpark. And to me, that's the most important thing. Um, you know, as we mentioned before, how you fill the time between pitches, to me is what differentiates a great broadcaster from you know, just an okay broadcast. I don't ever want to be boring. It's hard to not be boring during a baseball game. <laughs> Most of the time, nothing's happened. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, for me, that's, you know, that's important. And also trying to come up with information that the fan doesn't have, that the fan can't readily get. That's where talking to the players, talking to the manager and the coaches uh, is so important. And something that's been limited, you know, since COVID. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think my broadcasts are nearly as good now that I can't go into the clubhouse every day. Yeah. And come up with some interesting stuff by talking to players, both on our team and the other team. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. You know, that, that was, you know, one of the highlights of my day every day was, was, yeah. was digging and getting some of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Some little nuggets that no one else would know. Yeah. To me, that's what makes a, a great broadcast, you know. Yeah. I, and when I listen to other broadcasters, the guys who I, really like they're fun to listen to yeah yeah. that's what i want to hear people say about my broadcast is it's fun to listen to to. entertaining because after all you know that's that's why people are listening they want to be entertained yeah they want to know if the rangers win or lose but in a season like the one that you know we just got done with yeah a little rough whether they win or lose you know and then if you fall behind early 10 to nothing why should they keep listening yeah, how, what what are you thinking when this is happening? Because it was a rough season. So yeah, how do you keep going? Yeah, and it's it's every day pretty much looking for what Mark Holtz used to term diversionary tactics. Yeah, yeah. Basically, another way of entertaining the audience other than the balls and strikes and outs of yeah. this game. What can we find that's interesting? What can we find that's fun to talk about? What kind of offbeat things can we get into? Yeah. Okay, there's a player from Montana. Ooh, 
let's find all the players. How many players do you think there are from Montana? <laughs> well, let's find them all. And now with the internet, I can find them all in 10 seconds. Yeah, whatever you think of, just look it up, yeah. And that's the kind of thing I'm looking for constantly. You know, yeah. we, we have Jared Sandler, fortunately, to help us in that regard. Yeah. You know, the game gets bad. You know, Jared will text me during the game. We'll say, what inning do you want me to come up with a trivia question? For you? <laughs> you know, or how soon do you want a crazy list? Or do you want to try and guess what day this is, National Blank Day? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we turn to uh -huh. know, seasons like this. And even in a good season, if you have a really bad game. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you mentioned like, when you were talking about a good broadcast, I really do. When I'm listening to you, I do feel like like I'm sitting next to you or just hanging out at the game. And that's uh, there's an art to that that I think you have to work on and mm -hmm. you have to love it to do that. So, yeah. and I was telling Rebecca, your voice should be like a scented candle. <laughs> like I just love in the if there's an afternoon game and I'm driving around, I just love having it's just so relaxing having you on in the car. So, big man crush area. Yeah. I just, I, it's one of my favorite things to drive around the afternoon and listen to a race game. Yeah. Well, thanks. And, you know, and, and I have announcers like that, too. I mean, John Miller's that way for me. Oh, yeah. He's got a great voice, too. On my way home, if the Giants, if the Giants are playing and the Eagles yeah. are, you know, because they're two hours, two hours behind us, um, I'll, I'll listen to John. Yeah. And I've got a few <laughs> other guys like that who I really like. And, you know, the other thing in making great broadcast on radio is the description. Yeah. I wanted I want to see that picture. You know, you're yeah. Really, yeah. And you know, the really good announcers are the ones who give you more detail. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which is, you know, something that I also work really hard on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about your wife, Jeannie. How long have you guys been married? Does she uh, got, does she listen to you? Does she listen to you on the radio? And is she a sports fan? She only fan? listens to me if she needs to know what time I'm going to be home. <laughs> she doesn't even really need to do that anymore now that she can look on her phone. And yeah. <laughs> I don't even know that she does that. For you. Um, we got married in 1986. Okay. So this is our 35th anniversary. Yeah. yeah. Coming up soon. Oh, She's nice. not a sports fan. Um, when I met her, um, she grew up in Dallas, so she was a Dallas Cowboys fan. Okay. As required by law. <laughs> she didn't really know much or care much about the Rangers. Mm. And that really never changed. Um, <laughs> she basically um, told me, if the games get important, let me know. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And that never really even happened until the mid-90s. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. Tell her, like, around September 1st, I would say, hey, you know, we're, we're in a pen race. You might actually make the playoffs here. <laughs> you might want to start paying attention. And she, and she would do that. Yeah. But she uh, she never went to a lot of games. Um, her sister is a big Ranger fan, and she has friends who are big Ranger fans. She would go with them, you know, just to socialize. Yeah. Um, but she's a bandwagon fan. You know, the game's going to paying attention. She would go to all the playoff games. You know, she went to the World Series in yeah. St. Louis and suffered through that. <laughs> uh, I was trying not to bring up Nelson Cruz at all. Let's not even go there, because that hurt me too. Uh, it was that, yeah. I don't know that yeah. So how has she handled, like, you have a, because I travel a lot too with my work, and 
there's that six or eight months where you're just have a crazy travel schedule. Does she travel with you? Yeah, she travel like. No. Does she ever travel with you? anymore? Um, yeah. yeah. Early, she would go. Um, she has friends in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and really on both coasts, Boston and New York. And she would go on those trips. Um, she would usually go to you know one or two other cities that she'd never been to. Yeah. So she, she made it to almost all of the cities in the American League. I don't I don't think she ever got to Detroit um, or Cleveland, but I think she got to all the other ones. Yeah. Um, and now she doesn't she doesn't travel with me at all. Uh, one of the reasons is my job has changed in terms of when I need to get to the ballpark. Yeah. When we first got married, I could get to the ballpark at five or five thirty for a seven o'clock game and get my job done. Well, now I need to be there most days around three. Um, that's when I record the manager's show. He yeah. wants it out of the way so he can move on to more important things. Yeah. So that pretty much dictates that I need to be there at three o'clock. So it doesn't give us a whole lot of opportunity for doing anything during the day. And if she's going to be by herself, she'd rather be by herself in her own house right. with her own dog. Yes. Yeah. Her own yeah. friends around. Or lately, you know, in recent years, she's been spending more time in Colorado during the summer. Yeah. Getting out of the heat of Texas. Yeah. And, so she's not even around sometimes for the home games. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, if we make it to the playoffs again, World Series again, I imagine she'll be she'll be back on. She'll be somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's very independent. She knew what she was getting into. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very strange lifestyle, you know, yeah. for five months we're together every day. And yeah. then for seven months, we were, um, I spend more time with Matt Hicks than I do with her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we both like it that way. And, yeah. and you know, when COVID-19 hit and we stopped traveling uh, with the Rangers, all of a sudden, you know, Jeannie and I were together all the time. That's uh, not the way we roll. <laughs> You need that seven-month break. Yeah, that little break is nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're not wired for that. Oh, that's nice. We mm -hmm. try to visit most. Um, we're trying. We have a whole list of yep, major we league parks. To... We went to Cape Cod Leagues this year. We have like yeah. this whole list of like places we stadiums we want to visit. I think we're on fifteen. Yeah, I think together so. now. We're so about halfway. Yeah, about halfway. What's your favorite stadium and why? Well, Tiger Stadium is my favorite of all time. Uh, that's because first, of your first broadcast. That's a big reason. I also love the design. You know, it was built the same year as Fenway Park, 1912. Yeah. Uh, but with a double deck design, so that the the second deck completely overhung the first deck, and the broadcast booth hung from the second deck, so it was almost directly above the backstop. It's okay, so you're really close. close. Really close, by far the yeah. closest. We would hear things that were said at home plate. Oh wow. <laughs> And so I love that part. Also, when you walked in, it smelled of hot dogs. <laughs> and they had really good hot dogs there, and they cooked them on flat grills. Yeah. Just steaming, microwaving. They cooked them on flat grills. Oh, yes. And the smoke yeah. just permeated the whole ballpark. I, I, mm. I love it. Of the current parks, Fenway's probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. Just that whole historical aspect of it, uniqueness of it all. Yeah. Plus, I went to games there when I was in college. Um, so it, you know, it means a lot to me traditionally, yes. you know, of the new parks, I think I like Minnesota the most. It's really, you oh, know, yeah. that one. No, yeah. not yet. Uh -uh. 
Yeah, it looks different. A lot of the new parks look kind of the same. They do. It looks different. They use this blonde Minnesota Minnesota limestone for all the accents. Um, it's not symmetrical. There's this funky section in the outfield in the upper deck that's shaped like a trapezoid. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, there are a couple of really um, kind of throwback, old-fashioned neon signs, you know, that harken back to the 40s and the 50s. It's yeah, just a, yeah. it's really it's really fun. So yeah. I think that's a that's an underrated gem. Yeah. You should definitely definitely plan on going to that one. Yeah. Well, well and it's kind of interesting. You mentioned the parks looking the same. Like in the '70s, you had all the round parks, like you know St. Louis and all that, and Pittsburgh. They had the round things. So you feel like maybe some of the new stadiums are kind of copying each other again, maybe not yeah, being unique to a, to a certain extent. You know. Yeah. They, all with the dark green seats and you know and and they're all great um, yeah but um the ones that are unique are the ones that i like san francisco is very unique oh yeah and uh, the the problem with that park is they really didn't have enough space to build the park so the concourses are much too small yeah really crowded if, you know we almost didn't make it back to the booth one night after going out to the concession stands in center field because the concession, the uh, concourses are so narrow, it took us like a half an hour to get back to our booth. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And we were like salmon swimming upstream. <laughs> so I love the way the park looks. It's just functionally, it's not as good yeah. as the yeah. other ones. But yes. I love Seattle because it has that roof that's not attached to the stadium. It's yeah. really an umbrella. So it's an open air stadium, even though it has a roof. Uh -huh. I love that one. That's cool. San Diego is really nice and a little bit different. Oh, yeah. Have you guys been to that one? Yes. We've been to San Diego and Seattle. Seattle, I just remember there were too many Yankee fans in that game. <laughs> it was against the Yankees and the whole crowd was Yankees. But, yeah. Well, What's you do what? What's your favorite? My favorite, I'd have to go with Fenway too. You're about to tell me. I was about to tell him he had an emotional experience I really when did. we crested at the concourse, like walked up, and as right. soon as he, I have videotaped it because I you knew. Did. Tears, tears, like as he just walked up and could see. Uh, oh, it was just, it's like you're walking into a movie. Like it's something yeah. you never thought you would go see, you know, or ever, you would never experience yourself. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And, you know, me, I don't know. I get a, like the emotional attachment of things. And we try to take tours of all the stadiums yeah. we go to. So I love all the background. I love all the, tell me about where the wives set and tell me yeah. about where, you know, all that. And so I love Wrigley. Um, we had a bleacher bum did our yeah, tour there. Yeah, so, and cool. so that was really cool. Yeah. And just hearing about the little catwalk where the players walk across there is still, and I don't know, I just, I love, I, I think I get to get an emotional attachment, especially once we do the tour of like to all, get all the, the history. Of yeah, it. all the yeah. history and stuff like that. I love that. Which do you like the most out of the new parks that you've seen? Oh gosh, I really? I say Camden Yards. Camden Yards, yeah. I like Camden Yards. Yeah. 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 I really like. But I'm also a big Cal Ripken fan. Like that yeah, was are. my first dog's name. That's my email address. Like, yeah. so big Cal Ripken fan. So yeah. I really like San Diego. I mean, partly I guess it's the weather, but I like how it, it's kind of like Camden Yards, where it seems close in the outfield, and you've got the buildings in the outfield. Mm -hmm. So I really like the Padres. It's is it still Petco still? I don't. I they change names so much that it's hard to. Yeah, that one's still Petco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really yeah. like. You know, the other two parks that never get mentioned that I love are Kansas City. Oh, oh yeah, we went to Kansas City. That was, that's pretty. The fountains, 
Yeah. And it's designed, you know, specifically for baseball. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love that park. We also have a booth there that's very close to home plate. It's slowed down. So I'm yeah. totally doing that. But I also, I adore Dodger Stadium. Oh, yeah. yes. I love Dodger Stadium. I didn't think I would, but I love Dodger Stadium. Palm trees, sand yeah. the canyon the way it is. And it's still, it's, you know, it's kind of, um, it's so 60s. But yeah. But a really good job with the colors and the roof above the bleachers. Yeah. Uh, and then you go to the restroom and Ben Scully's talking to you. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. get any better than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah when we was at Dodger Stadium, Scott said, Dodger fans are known for showing up in the third and leaving in the seventh. And I said, why? And then I realized the traffic situation. We, we thought we were early and we still got oh, there in the third inning. It was terrible. But we, yeah. when we went to Kaufman, it was a night that they were celebrating the Negro League, right? Yeah. And then the, everybody was dressed to the nines. So they had on the hats, the suspenders, the yeah. women had the gloves on. And you could just look in a certain direction where people were dressed that way and just be taken back in time. It was yeah. really cool. It was pretty neat. Yeah, that was really cool. I like that one too. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to throw some names at you and just give me some quick thoughts about uh, these names. These are like Ranger, uh, memorable Rangers. The first one is Mark Holtz. Oh, the greatest baseball announcer the Rangers have ever had. <laughs> and, have. Um, and just a, a super warm, kind, friendly guy. And that came over on the air. So the people people loved him immediately upon hearing. He also had probably the best voice. Of yeah, he was great. Ever. Yeah. He was great at capturing the dramatic moments. Uh, he was just so good in so many ways and you know, died far too soon. And he was a mentor for you, right? Over yes, the, yes. yeah. When we started working together, I had been doing baseball for three years. He had been doing it for like 20 years, you know, in yeah. before he got the ring job. Mm -hmm. no, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, Nolan Ryan. I think a few people know who that is. Nolan Ryan. Yeah. Um, unbelievably humble. Yeah. That's the thing I would say. You know, you, you always hope that when you meet your heroes, they're the kind of people you hope they would be yes he is. he is you know for a guy who's you know a renowned superstar to be as down to earth as he is it just seems impossible but but somehow yeah. he is yeah yeah i remember i worked at the ranger stadium like in the parking lot one year in so, 94 i think so we could get tickets so i could get all-star tickets right. free all -star. <laughs> but i remember i was going down one of the stairwells uh one day and nolan was coming up and I just remember how big he was. Like he was just a wide, like just a big, like stocky man. And I just remember, wow, that's a big dude. He wasn't like tall or anything. He was just like solid. So yeah. He would sign autographs. Like when, when the team bus would get to the hotel after we would fly somewhere, there would always be a legion of fans waiting yeah. for him. He would sign everyone. It didn't matter if it was wow. four morning. And there would be dozens of people at four in the morning. Yeah. He would sign till the last person was gone. That's and the same thing when the bus would leave for the ballpark, Nolan would stand outside the bus while players were getting on, sign every autograph, and then get on the bus. And when the team would leave, same sort of thing. As the players were filing onto the bus, many of them ignoring all the kids who wanted autographs. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nolan would stand there and sign. And so many times you'd see him get on the bus and there would be Sharpie marks all over his sleeves. Yeah. Wow. Or the sleeves of his jacket or his shirt or on his arm. Uh -huh. You know, from guys, you know, jostling oh, wow. position playing 
try and get the autograph. He would, yeah. you know, he would try and accommodate every fan he possibly could. To make yeah. those special memories for people, that's something they'll never forget. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay, the next name is Johnny Oates. Johnny Oates, I would say by the book. Yeah. He was, he was a, a very good manager who did everything by the book. But he knew the book backwards and forwards. He knew the percentage move to make. Managers then didn't have all the information that they have now to make their decisions. So he was pretty much right versus left and yeah. kind of predictable. But he was very steady. Uh, you know, he was an old-fashioned guy, um, and he knew how to let his veterans run the clubhouse. And that might have been his his best strength as a manager. You know, I think the most important job the manager has is having players in the right frame of mind to play. Yeah. That's the biggest challenge. And Johnny let guys like Will Clark and Mark McLemore take care of things in the clubhouse so he didn't have to be in there very much. And, you know, I don't know that we'd ever had a manager before that who did it quite that way. And I think that's one of the reasons he was so successful. And with a largely better team, it's, you know, it's the way to do it. Yeah. Okay, the last name is Adrian Beltran. <laughs> One oh, of my favorites. The most fun to watch. Really, yeah. We've ever had. Adrian and and Pudge shared that sort of joy of playing. Yeah. You know, playing with a smile on your face. You know, not that many guys do that. And I, I'm really drawn to those players. So, I Kirby Puckett is my favorite all time. Because then your dog named after? My dog's named Kirby Puckett. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with a smile on his face. And he just, it was just infectious. And Beltre is the same way. You know, and to be able to play at a Hall of Fame level and still have that much fun is pretty unique. Yeah. It took me, it took me a season to really get back into Ranger baseball after Adrian left. Just, you're talking about just that fun that he had. And it's like, I was wondering, why am I not into the Rangers as much? And I just missed Adrian. Mm-hmm. Like, just the excitement. And he would do something crazy every game, something amazing. And he was just having fun. Yeah. He and Elvis would have so much fun together. Yeah. yeah. To play at a high level and have fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last week I'm a hairdresser and last week I had a guy in my chair that I said, Hey, we're he's a big Ranger fan. I told him we were interviewing you and he said, Hey, you know he's a big music guy, right? And uh I said, No, I didn't know that. And I, and I think you knew that. But yeah. anyway, so and you just had a birthday party at the Kessler, I think. So tell us about how you love why you love music so much and who are you listening to these days? Well, there was always music in our house as a kid. My mom would listen to show tunes, you know, mm. Oklahoma, West Side Story, South Pacific, King and I, stuff like that. And then my sister one day brought home an Elvis Presley record, and then I was hooked. Yeah. Um, it was a 78 that had Hound Dog on one side and Don't Be Cruel on the other side. <laughs> and from that point on, you know, I was going to the record store all the time and listening to records and buying records. And you know, as the years have gone on, uh, I've always been open to all kinds of different music. And you know, I'm pretty much a fan of rock, Americana, yeah. you know, what they used to call folk, um, some country, um, a lot of soul, rhythm and blues. And you know, I'm hearing new artists all the time. And I've kind of got my antenna out and I've got people who send me new artists all the time. Uh, and 
I'm, I'm constantly, constantly looking for new music. I, I yeah. put on a concert series once a month at Cafe Momentum in downtown Dallas, which is a nonprofit restaurant that hires juvenile offenders when they yeah. come out of detention. And once a month, we have a, a dinner concert, and I get to pick the bands. I get to pick the artists. <laughs> is that year round? It's year round. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. We closed down for the pandemic, but we started yeah. up again this May. We've had, I think, 40 shows. Okay. Wow. Yeah, we definitely want to check that out. Something like yeah. that. And yeah. The next one is uh, November the 21st. Okay. And we won't do one in December. Then we'll start up again in January. Oh, that's cool. It's an amazing cause. Um, yeah. They, the kids who are in this program have a, a recidivism rate of about 10%, whereas normally the kids who come out of juvenile detention, it's over 50%. Yeah. So it's been yeah. an incredible success story. And to be able to take part in what they do once a month, you know, and provide a musical experience, both for the patrons and the kids, yeah. you know, it's really rewarding. That's really cool. That's great. I know, I was looking at you, I was like, scrolling through your Instagram, and it seems like wherever you go, you find somewhere to find a live band. Is what, I tried yeah. to. I yeah. Tried yeah. To. yeah. It used to be a lot easier when everybody played day games on Saturdays. Yeah. <laughs> always find some music on Saturday night. Yeah. But I'm always looking to try and, you know, get lucky on, a, on an off day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, yeah. as soon as the season ends, I usually cash in. I think the, the first week after the season, I think I went to three different shows including my current favorite band. You asked who I'm listening to these days. Lake Street Dive. Oh, Lake okay. Street Dive. Okay. okay. Street Dive. They're yeah. kind of a jazz rock band. They're okay. very unique. Um, the lead female singer has an unbelievable voice and persona. Um, and I've been a fan of theirs since 2010 when I saw them <laughs> opening a show um, for another band at a club in New York. And now they've actually gotten to the point where they, they play at Red Rocks every year, which is amazing. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Yeah. And uh, I saw them at the, at the factory last week. We used to be called the Bomb Factory, and I'll just call the factory in deep yeah. home. Like between three and 4,000 people. Yeah, and that's cool. I've seen them many times, and I'll go see them every chance I get. They're, yeah. they're my number one favorite. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search that, them out on iTunes and see if we get that. Because <laughs> so, I love live music. I love finding new music. So, yeah, that's right down my alley. So, okay, now we have a book we're going to talk about. Speaking of art, <laughs> we have Limerick. It's a book that you put out with different limericks in it. So, how did this idea come about? Um, you and got, you got some unusual talents. You really do. Your music, <laughs> your writing, you got lots of things going on here. You do. So where did the idea come from? And uh, we asked if you would share your favorite limerick. So uh, yeah. the idea came from what we were talking about earlier: diversionary tactics. <laughs> um, a few years ago, the Rangers were hopelessly out of contention by the end of April. They were like ten games behind the Astros. By the yeah, end of I think it was 2017, and. One day, um, we were playing the Red Sox, and how is it that Matt put it? Oh, one of their players had just been called up from their minor league team, which, of course, was Pawtucket. Pawtucket, yeah. <laughs> Matt said they just called him up from Pawtucket. <laughs> and I said, hey, Matt, that kind of sounds like the first line of a limerick. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I've heard that limerick. I don't think we can say it on the air. <laughs> yeah. 
And I said, well, let's write one that we can say on the air. Uh-huh. And so in between innings and like, while Matt was doing play by play, I'm scribbling things. And, and when I was in junior high school and they taught us about limericks, I was immediately very good at it. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, but we came up with this limerick, um, a young hitting star from Pawtucket, each time up would step into the bucket. If he got this corrected, he'd soon be elected to Cooperstown, like Kirby Puckett. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, there was a lot of reaction to it on social media. And I said, hey, Matt, this is it. This is our diversionary tactic. Yeah. Let's write a limerick every game oh, and wow. read it on the air in the eighth inning so people have to stick around or if they tune out, they can tune back in. And by the eighth inning, we can write it about that game or write it about something else that's going on in the world or in our lives or something. But you didn't work on it until then. You didn't work on it until the gang started. Right. Yeah, okay. Although if something else was going on, maybe we would, like when the World Cup was going on, I remember, you know, writing some lyrics about the World Cup. Uh And when the NBA Finals were going on, we wrote a lyric (laughs) about the NBA Finals. And sometime that year, I think it was in June, a friend of mine said, you know, at the end of the year, you're going to have 120 limericks. Yeah. You should get an artist and put out a book. Yeah. Another friend of mine, when I was talking about the idea, said, well, I know this artist. His name, as it turned out, is Art James. And he's done a lot of album covers and a lot of sports art. And he's a big Ranger fan. And why don't you talk to him? So I had lunch with him and I gave him some of the limericks. And he sent me later that day some sketches. And I said, you're the guy, you know, let's do this. (laughs) I I was looking for a project to do with the Rangers Charity Foundation since Uh they did such amazing work in building rec centers and ball fields all over the Southwest, you know, in underserved neighborhoods. And so we came up with the idea to do this book and raise money for the Rangers Foundation with the sales of the book. And that's really how the whole thing came to be. Wow. That's great. And we we let our fans know we had 10 books available. You were nice enough to sign them for us. And those were those were gobbled up pretty quick. <laughs> so we've already gotten rid of our 10 books. So we appreciate you doing so that. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And Love my it. favorite limerick in the book yeah. is about the the switch pitcher, the ambidextrous pitcher. Pat Vendetti, I'm fascinated with this guy. Um, he pitches left-handed to left-handed batters. Yeah. Left-handed to right-handed batters. <laughs> He's the only pitcher in Major League history to do that. Yeah. And he's a fringe Major League. You know, he, every year he spends part of the year in the Majors, part of the year in the Minors. Because he doesn't yeah. throw that part. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, he was playing for the Dodgers that season that we were writing the limericks and he came in to pitch against us and I said, oh, this is, I got to write a limerick about Pat Vendetti. So I quickly came up with the beginning of it and I kind of got stuck in the middle of it. And a friend of mine actually texted me during the game, a friend of mine, Beth Krugler, texted me during the game and said, are you writing a limerick about Pat Vendetti? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I am. Yeah. And she said, um, well, 
I'm writing one too. <laughs> she sent me the limerick that she wrote. Yeah. Between, between the first two lines that I have come up with and the punchline that she came up with, together we wrote this limerick while oh, he was wow. actually pitching that night. Yeah. <laughs> and then after the game, I actually went down there uh, and talked to him and showed him the limerick. And he was really enthusiastic about it. And I got his address so that I could send him a book. When, yeah. when came out. And we have this incredible drawing of him throwing with both arms simultaneously. Yeah. It's crazy. But the limerick goes, whenever they need Pat Vendetti, his left arm and right arm are ready. He brings the team extras because he's ambidextrous. With which hand does he eat spaghetti? <laughs> and that was best of mine. Yes, yeah, that that's is great. Fantastic. Scott, I can... he eats spaghetti with his right hand. Yeah. Oh, he does. Okay. So he's not he's even ambidextrous. His father taught him to throw left handed. When he yeah. started playing baseball, his father taught him to throw with both hands, starting at like age three. He wow. doesn't do anything else left handed except pitch to left handed batters. That's so interesting. Didn't Brooks Robinson do that too, where he used the opposite hand so he could get used to it? I think that's what my dad told me one time. I don't know about that. Yeah. 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 It's a good way. What were yeah. you going to say? I was just going to say, I can see why you totally have a man fresh here. He, yeah. Scott, of course, loved for baseball, loves local music, and yeah. he has also published, published a book, quite an author. Both of you guys have the same wavelength brain. Yeah. So. And I could talk baseball with you all night long. <laughs> I really could. But yeah. we probably should let, yeah, we, we should probably let Eric go. He needs to get He's some in Colorado enjoying himself. Yeah. Eric. What a pleasure to have you on. We thank you so much for your time and all your knowledge and wisdom. It's been so much fun. We appreciate you. Great to meet you guys. Great to okay. meet you. Babe, that was amazing. It was. Such a great interview. And I think you really stumped him with that Brooks Robinson trivia at the end. Well, I say my dad was telling the truth about that, but I'm pretty sure Eric knows a lot more about baseball than I do. I bet he does. Yeah. Yes, he does. And listen, this book is going to go so fast. It is on Amazon right now. You should get it for stocking stuffers. What a great plan. Get it for stocking stuffers right now. It is spelled like his name. Lim Eric. Eric, yep. which is a form of poetry. It is so good. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe to Hardy Party Five and a Half Podcast. You should do that because season four is going to be all that. <laughs> Hardy Party Five and a Half, over and out. We'll see you next time.